It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday up and down the West Coast. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, the irreverent John Riley. We welcome you to our Dixieline Lumber and Home Center stores and our Thursday podcast as we go towards a great sports weekend. John, we're going all over the roadmap in the next hour with a Thursday podcast because we got baseball, we got NFL football, we got some interesting storylines to talk about in college football, an unbelievable out-of-the-clear-blue-sky NBA trade, and we got golf. Boy, what a busy time. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot going on. This is a great time of year for sports. You know, with Major League Baseball coming to a close, going into the playoffs, NFL, college football, college basketball right around the corner, too. So, yeah, this is a great time. Uh, our Thursday podcast brought to you by those guys, Dixon Line Lumber and Home Center Stores. You know, there are nine locations in San Diego to serve you. You got projects to get done for the fall, whether you're doing it yourself or somebody else is doing it. Ask you to go visit Dixie Line Lumber Stores and just see what they've got to offer. For the fall, fix it, build it. We guarantee you will enjoy it. Topic one. <laughs> okay, here we go. Padres, lots of storylines here, Lee. Padres end of the season, beginning of possible changes. We're going to go a lot of different directions here. Let's start, first of all, with what's going to happen, we think, Monday afternoon. Peter Seidler, the owner recovering from surgery, one of his lawyers from Seidler Equity, the president, Eric Gruppner, Bob Melvin, the manager, A.J. Preller, the general manager, will meet. We believe Monday afternoon after the conclusion of the regular season, and they will determine what the future of the organization is going to be, John. We're sitting here with a Padre franchise that is in the middle of terrible dysfunction. They're scuffling and struggling and hoping they can find a way to back into the playoffs, but it might be too little too late. But the bigger story and the word that's being used from people in and around that organization, the bigger story is the civil war between Preller and Melvin over the operation of the team in the dugout, in the clubhouse, and on the field. At this point in time, the theory is that Seidler wants them both to stay. He wants them to work this thing out. It's been two years running, and it looks like the Preller-Melvin relationship is deteriorated, much like the Preller-Andy Green relationship, the Preller-Jace Tingler relationship, etc. Is Melvin going to walk away? That's possible. Or is there a mandate, we're going to change the way we're going to do business, which means to me, A.J. Preller is put on notice, you must give him his freedom in the clubhouse and in the dugout to run the team that you put together for him. That's what I think the Monday meeting is going to be all about. What's the outcome? I don't know. But I I am of the opinion they need to keep this together one more year and give them one more year with the mandate. You make some changes, how you interact, how you relate, who makes what decision at what point, who makes the other decision, and who controls the game. That's just my brief overview of where we are in the front office war with the manager in the dugout. Your perceptions. Oh, this is an interesting thing because, first of all, um, 
what are some examples of the meddling that Preller is doing? Is he telling him who to start or who, which relievers to use or who to bat in what part of the order? I mean, what kind of meddling is happening? Here's the volume of the metrics for this afternoon's game. Read it and use it. Hmm. And by the way, this is who is going to play. And by the way, this is whom we recommend is first guy out of the bullpen who doesn't pitch, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of that going on. Okay. Now, understand, Melvin came from a metric-driven system in Oakland. And I don't think Billy Bean was an easy guy to get along with. And yet, they worked together. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that in Oakland, they gave him that sheath of papers and they had their staff meetings, and then they let him go into the dugout and run the team. I get a different sense here that Preller's fingerprints are on everything, every minute of every day. And, you know, the 32 people who anonymously contributed uh, to the articles in The Athletic and the UT kind of painted that same picture. Interesting. So I think that has to change. I, I don't think Melvin is pushing back and saying, I don't want to hear from your metric people anymore. Just let me manage the game. But he is pushing back and saying, you gave me this roster. You're giving me these metrics. Let me run this thing game time and do mm -hmm. it the way I think it has to be done. So that's where we are with that scenario. I think they should both stay there, just rearrange the decision-making structure. Somebody has to back off, and I think it's Preller that needs to back off. You build the roster. You give him the roster. You let the man run the clubhouse, run the dugout, and run the game. Agree or disagree? Well, no one likes a micromanager, and that's what we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they got to make some changes here. So, uh, hopefully, they can come to peace, come to terms. Yeah. That's where we are as it relates to the, quote, civil war. And that's the latest word that has been used <laughs> by the national media as it relates to A.J. Preller. And Bob Melvin. Okay, let's look at the names on the lineup list here because they got some really tough decisions to make. And I'm going to walk you through a couple of things here. What Blake Snell has done here is unbelievable. He's got a 1.20 ERA in his last 23 starts. Wow. The only guy that has put up those kind of numbers, 1.20, was Bob Gibson, St. Louis Cardinals, 1968. Wow. 0.65 ERA over a 23-game window. Blake Snell has almost equaled what Bob Gibson did. Now, Gibson had a phenomenal career. Snell has been Jekyll and Hyde. He's making $16 million a year. He's represented by you-know-who. Scott Boris. Price tag, according <laughs> to Boris, might be $30 mil. I would never pay a pitcher $30 mil. Not on a three-year contract, probably not on a five-year contract. Um, if I were the Padres, I would offer Blake Snell a bump, maybe $20 million the first year with an option for 25 or if he vests in certain statistics, the second year goes to 25 and hope he takes it. Why? And I'm going to pull this word out of my pocket that probably doesn't fit in any conversation. It's called loyalty. Mm -hmm. They resurrected his career. Tampa Bay got rid of him because he was so erratic. And he was erratic here. And then finally flipped the light switch on and figured a lot of things out, at least this summer. But no in his history, that doesn't guarantee it'll be like that next summer. I would try to bump him to 20 uh, with, with clauses that could push it to 25, maybe over two years. And if Boris says no, then you have to cut, cut ties. Josh Hader, price tag $13 million. Really rock-solid guy. Probably a $20 million relief pitcher per year. 
That's the going price for the guys that's upper echelon there. I'm a little bit taken back by this stuff that's just happened within the last couple of weeks about availability. Yeah, really. I, I know my arm and what I can do and what I don't want to do and what I've been allowed to do. And I was kind of offended when they're fighting for their playoff life. This guy's only pitched, I think it's 15 innings now since August 1st. And it's the end of September. 15 innings. Right. So I, I have a problem with that. But he's earned a bump maybe to 20. Juan Soto, arbitration eligible. His price will probably go to 30 this season. I would just sit there and let him continue to play on a contract year. See if he can reproduce it. Then you have to make the decision because you got to deal with you-know-who. Scott Boris. Okay, here we go. <laughs> now, other decisions. Michael Walker, spectacular year. Padres had a really good year in Boston. If the Red Sox had him, they'd probably be in the playoffs because he's been rock-solid reliable. He's fought through some issues. There's an option there. What do they do? Two years, $32 million. That's a $16 million per season bump. I guess I'd give Waka $16 million on a one- or two-year contract. I don't know what they're going to do with Lugo. He's got an option. Uh, he's making seven point five. He's been trustworthy at the back end. Maybe I bump him to 10. I don't go beyond that because nobody pays their fourth or fifth or sixth starters $15 million. Mm-hmm. And Lugo sat there forever and ever before he finally got signed because everybody had questions about him. He's been more than adequate, but he's been okay. Nick Martinez, uh, he's got an option that could afford him $8 million per season the next two seasons if the Padres pick up that two-year option. He's been pretty serviceable. $8 million's kind of high for kind of a back-of-the-rotation, first-guy-out-of-the-bullpen guy. It's the going rate. So here's the question. And I don't have an answer for it, John, but since you wanted to co-host out in left field, you're going to give me an opinion on this. Okay. All those names I mentioned, mm-hmm. if you keep them in place at the pay raises I just handed out, it's a $46 million increase to the payroll. Right. So the burning question is, where do you get the $46 million from? How do you do that? Because you're tacking on more money to each of these guys without taking care of Soto, except Soto will get an arbitration type contract. So you tell me who you keep, who you delete, where's the $46 million coming from if you're going to take the payroll down from 253 down to 200 John, the well, table is yours. If they're going to, yeah, if they're going to bring the payroll down to 200 they can't keep any of these guys. I mean, well, they have to keep Soto because he's under contract, but, you know, Snell and, um, and Waka and Lugo, are going to walk, um, you know, and then, you know, Nick Martinez, I guess, is it a player option or a club option, club. a club. So they might let him walk too, if they want to get down to 200, because apparently there's something going on with the debt ratio, you know, that they need to get down, but according to MLB rules, but, you know, in my fantasy dream world, um, I would make the same offer to Snell, um, you know, give him a bump, hope he, he takes it to stay here. Cause he, He's had such great success here and he loves mud and dawn, you know, and all of that. But, you know, Hader needs to walk. We can plug in Suarez. Lugo and Waka have been tremendous. It'd be great to keep those guys as back end. Martinez, he's a little shaky, but I think you hang on to him too. As far as Soto goes, 
you know, again, in my utopia, you keep him too. He's had a great year with his OPS is over 900. He's had 30 home runs, 100 RBIs. He's been killing it lately. And he's playing like the Soto that we always expected. So why wouldn't he duplicate it next year? I think he's still trying to work a long-term deal with it. But if the mandate is to get to 200 million, well, you're screwed because you got the Fab Four. They're all locked in. I mean, you don't have much flexibility. Here's a sidebar angle to all these economic things we're just talking about. Uh, plain and simple, they don't have a $60 million a year TV contract now. Oh, so yeah. that's that's money that's not coming in the door effective next year. I think the TV rights fee, even though MLB's taking it over, could be a lot less. On top of that, by not making the playoffs this year, not having home playoff games, that's $10 million revenue that they're not getting wow. from what would have been playoff game home revenue. Yeah. It's a it's a big issue. Uh, that being said, you know, they busted the all-time attendance record, John, of over 3 million, 3.23 million this year. Nice. Mega profits. Ticket prices are going up. They keep this core together. These guys bounce back and have a really good season next year. Sky's the limit in terms of revenue and I th- I would think profits. Now, yeah. whether, whether that means a $250 million payroll again, I don't know. So there's there's a lot of ancillary dollar questions that are out there right now. So we'll see what Monday brings as it relates to the Civil War conversation. And then obviously the evaluation as the offseason begins. And who's going to be making those decisions and what are they willing to spend? It's going to be really interesting. So we, we will go from the baseball season to a very busy offseason season effective Monday morning if there's no playoff game. Oh, yeah, it'll be like a Black Monday, right, like they uh, like they have in the NFL. Um, but, you know, we, we never really can see the books of these franchises. And I think, what is it, Fortune Magazine will usually kind of do a, an estimation of their profitability. But it makes you wonder, like, if you were looking at the Padres as a business entity, their annual revenue, their annual expenses, are they profitable? Are they losing money? Is Seidler going into his pocket? I mean, obviously, they're going to make the money down the road when the franchise value keeps going up and he sells it. He'll cash out. But I often wonder that even in a situation like this where the TV revenue is down, the the expenses for the 253 million payroll are way up. Is it profitable? Is it is it a profitable enterprise? And I'm not sure if we're ever going to know. I think history writes that the owners kept having to have cash calls now. They weren't real good teams for a chunk of time, mm-hmm. and prices were going up, the Kevin Brown contracts and all that, and the owners had to keep going to cash calls. But that was that was a different set of circumstances. This is Petco Park. This is Gaslamp. This is Padres own the market economically in terms of corporate sponsorship because the Chargers vacated. So I think I think the dollar numbers are really different now than they were under the Croc era. They were obviously under the oh, yeah. terrible Tom Werner times, uh, and <laughs> and, and the dollar dollar values are even greater now than they were in the John Moore successful run with Larry Lacino. It's it's really interesting to see where they're going to go, and money is driving what will be a lot of decisions. So that's what I would do if I were king. Hey, want to remind you that our podcast is brought to you by Dixon Line Lumber and Home Center Stores. Nine locations to serve you. you got projects for the fall going towards the winter. We invite you to take a tour at any of the nine Dixie Line Lumber Stores. John, before we move on to the next baseball topic, um, 
We just hit a lot of hot buttons with Padre Baseball. We got people on the live stream. Explain to everybody that's joining our live stream how we want them to give us your bleeping opinion on the Padres and the Civil War in the front office by joining us on the what we call Fans Forum. Yeah, so like have a take and don't suck. I mean, that's the, the old mantra from the 690 days. Um, yeah, if you have a question or a comment for Hacksaw, you got an opinion about the Padres, the Dodgers, the Chargers, the Aztecs, or any team in, in America, you know, let us know. Drop your question or comment in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll get you involved in Fans Forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And you can subscribe. We want you to subscribe. We want you to share so that you'll know every time we put something new up on our YouTube channel. So how do they do that, John? Well, I mean, you go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we're on all the audio-only platforms. If you're watching on YouTube, just click on that subscribe button. Click on the bell. You'll get the updates because we're dropping new videos every day of the week. And be sure to like, follow, share, and subscribe. Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, he's on every social media platform. I'll tell you, the Instagram channel, that Chargers Vikings video that we dropped last night is about to go over 100,000 views. In 10 hours. Yeah, unbelievable. Agree or disagree doesn't matter, but you're following, and that's the only thing that counts. And by the way, give us a thumbs up if you can. Give us a five-star rating because we really like that. And if you like sports, check my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. Check it every day of the week. I write on it every day. It's really different. So we go from Padre baseball, which has been a season of despair, to an unbelievable end of the season in Baltimore that now has an asterisk next to it because of a sad note. Yeah, Brooks Robinson. I mean, one of the all-time great third basemen, the Hoover. Remember, that was his nickname, wasn't it? Back in the day. A great headline. Lord Baltimore, Mr. Oriole, passes away. Brooks Robinson was a bonus baby in 1955. He's from a small high school in Arkansas, went to Baltimore. They had been a bad team as the St. Louis Browns got to Baltimore. He was the first piece that they put in place that would become the Earl Weaver-led Baltimore Orioles World Series champions. Bonus baby, 18-time All-Star, 16-time Gold Glove, two World Series rings, two MVP trophies, over 2,800 hits, 268 home runs. I tried to think of guys who had spent their entire life with one team and, and how they were viewed. I mean, there was a specialness to Joe DiMaggio way back in the day with the Yankees, a unique class. Uh, there was an imagery with Teddy Ballgame and the great years with Ted Williams and the Red Sox. We all know about Mr. Padre and, and just the gracefulness of Tony Gwynn, the person and the player. And then there was Cal Ripken, who made the way he played just a science, the legendary shortstop. Orioles, who broke the all-time consecutive games played record. And then there was Brooks Robinson. And I'll tell you, Brooksy, it didn't come easy. Brooksy was a grinder. I interviewed him twice. Really nice throwback Southern gentleman. But he was a grinder. And, you know, you close your eyes now and we see Machado making these unbelievable plays at third. That's who Brooks Robinson was. He was, I think, the first of a kind to do it that way. What a great player. Lived to age 86, uh, served his community, unbelievable foundation and charities once he retired. Did Orioles TV with Jim Palmer. Palmer broke down and cried on the air when it was talking about Brooks Robinson. 
what a, an amazing gentleman. He's an 18-year-old bonus baby when they really bad Baltimore Orioles put him on the field at third base and sink or swim, and he swam his way to the Baseball Hall of Fame. What a hell of a player. Yeah, I mean, incredible. And when was his last year? I mean, he retired like in the early 70s, right? Yeah. And so that was right around the time that I started following baseball as a young as a young boy. But I always thought of Brooks Robinson as this amazing defensive player. But every time you were reading off those offensive stats, I'm like, wow, he is a better offensively than I really thought. Yeah, he was great with the glove. And I think, I don't think it came easy to him. You know, Tony Gwynn would first day of spring training, step up on the first pitch of spring training, would hit one to the 5-5 five, five hole and go through. It was easy for Tony Gwynn to hit. I don't think it was easy for Brooks Robinson to do what he did, but he did it every day for all those years. And uh, what a special guy. Just absolutely amazing. So we say goodbye to Brooks Robinson and the Orioles, I think, you know, they're going to have the best record in the American League. They're going to have home field advantage. And they've come such a long way in fixing what had been such a downtrodden franchise. They're going to dedicate the entire postseason to Mr. Oriole, Lord Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, it's a great year for the Orioles to go on a run and celebrate the legacy of Brooks Robinson. On we go from baseball. We're shooting three-point shots in basketball. Wow. Yeah, so this trade went down. This was a shocker. This was a late-night deal. The rumor was that Portland had met with Damian Lillard about two weeks ago, just prior to the start of the training camp, and they had indicated that they were not going to trade him unless they could make it turn out to be a win-win deal, and win-win meant Portland was going to get volumes of talent. Well, they tried with Miami, and they didn't like what Miami offered. They didn't. It wasn't enough in the Miami deal. They tried to get a third team and a three-way deal with Miami and somebody else and couldn't find the right combination. And then Milwaukee, which already has an NBA championship, shows up and says, we're willing to do this, and they brought Phoenix into the conversation. Uh, at the end of the day, Damian Lillard, who's got four years and 200-plus million left on a contract, doesn't go to Miami where he wanted. He goes to Milwaukee. But he goes to play with Giannis, and he goes to play with Chris Middleton. So they got themselves three stars in Milwaukee wearing that green jersey. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a really, really good basketball team. And now the general consensus is that's the team you're going to have to beat if you think you can raise somebody's NBA trophy. Lillard, 32 points per game, not a selfish player. He's carried the Trailblazers. So he goes there to form a, a threesome in the Bucks lineup. Portland gets young guard Giroux Holiday, 16 points per game, really active player. They get DeAndre Ayton, uh, 16 points, 10 rebounds per game with the Suns. He's not a stoic, in-your-face, physical force center. He's more of a slick guy, but he'll help them. Uh, and Portland also gets a number one pick and the right to flip other number one picks with Phoenix as a byproduct of this trade. So the Trailblazers, even though Lillard goes, Portland's got a lot of good young guards. They're going to add to that equation. It's just going to be a very different team. And the Suns, to me, this is a strange aspect. They soured on Aiton, just either the fact that he was not a gamer every game of the year, and maybe he wasn't a real hard worker, although statistically had nice numbers. But they get a banger in Joseph Nurkic, 6'11 center. They get three guards, three-point shooter Grayson Allen, Nasir Little, and young forward Keon Johnson. So they're going to be a very, very different basketball team. But then again, look who they got in the offseason in their trades. And 
obviously they're, they're really pleased with what their team's going to be, but the team's not going to have that type of post player that Eitan was. And Eitan was as good an athlete as Devin Booker and all the other guys mm-hmm. that they've acquired. And of course, they do have Kevin Durant. So it's, it was a shocker of a trade. There's fallout from the trade. Now, now Miami's got a problem. Jimmy Butler is really upset that they did not pay the price or, or find the third team to make this deal happen. How long is it? What's it, your watch say? How long before Jimmy Butler is going to stand up and say, I want out of Miami? Mm. And Tyler Hero, the young shooting guard who had big injuries last year, but really played well prior to that. He's unhappy now because he was in this trade and he was going to go somewhere else and get a new lease on life rather than be stuck behind the people they stuck behind in Miami. So didn't work out for Miami. Your response to the big three, big three mailing address is now Milwaukee. Yeah, well, first of all, for Lillard, you know, he gets what he wanted, right? He wanted to have a chance at a championship. So for him, he probably wasn't expecting to go to Wisconsin, but it probably worked out. It seems like the Bucks, though, um, you know, Giannis, what's his long-term future there? I think he only has a couple of years left. So this might be a, a, a tactic by the Bucks ownership to keep Giannis long-term. But I feel bad for the Trailblazer fan. I mean, I wonder what the reaction is in Portland to all of this. Well, the fact is they had the superstar and they still were unable to put people around them. Portland must be a tough place to recruit free agents to go. Mm-hmm. So he had given him everything he could. He was a solid citizen. He was never a problem. He had opinions, which is okay. So at the end of the day, he leaves. But they do get they do get a real haul back in terms of starting players. I mean, the potential of three starters in this transaction will be a very different team without Dame in the back court there in Portland. And I'm going to be intrigued to see what happens in, in, in Phoenix because, you know, they had the new owner that came in at the end of the season and they paid an unbelievable price to get Kevin Durant out of Brooklyn. And so it's going to be a very different chemistry basketball team. They got a new owner walking in, like, I know everything about everything and let's go make these deals. We'll see. We'll see if it pans out. And of course, NBA camps are opening this weekend and into next week. And as we get going, we'll talk more about the Lakers and Clippers. But if you're a basketball fan, what do you think about Dame going to Milwaukee? Jump on board there with our fans forum. Hey, we get to halftime of our Thursday podcast as we head towards this great sports weekend. Want to remind you, our podcast brought to you by the good people at Dixon Line Lumber and Home Center Stores. And if you've got fall projects planned, you need to go to Dixieline and see everything that they've got. Sometime Friday or Saturday or Sunday, just drive to one of the nine Dixieline locations. Just take a walk through. You'll be amazed at all the products they have. And it doesn't matter what the project is, whether you're building bookcases or whether you're doing renovation of the kitchen, doing stuff out on the patio, Dixieline Lumber is the place to go to get all your supplies. Dixieline Lumber and Home Center Stores. Build it. Fix it. Guarantee for fall. You will enjoy it. And as we come out of halftime here, let's talk about the next topic on the table, all things National Football League. Oh, John, I'm waiting for people on Fans Forum to express a few opinions. We got games to talk about. Oh, big-time games here. I mean, you know, lots of great matchups, including the Chargers and the Raiders. is always a classic. Okay, you got the Bolts versus the Silver and Black. Both of them are really banged up. Austin Eckler still got the high ankle sprain. He only worked out on the side with trainers, has taken no snaps whatsoever uh, with the number one offense. He's still listed as limited as they go towards Sunday's game. Not a complicated. Joey Bosa's not only dealing with a nagging hamstring, he's got a toe injury. 
On top of that, Kenneth Murray, the linebacker, has got a groin injury. On top of that, Eric Kendricks is still bothered by the hamstring. He was limited in workouts. At one point, the Chargers had nine starters who either did not practice or were limited in practice on Wednesday and Thursday. I don't know how many of these guys are going to be able to get off that side field and get on the field to play Sunday at SoFi Stadium. Raiders' Jimmy Garoppolo got nailed in the head at the end of the Raiders game last Sunday in concussion protocol, finally cleared concussion, did full practice today, but they gave equal snaps to him and to Brian Hoyer, the 38-year-old journeyman backup. So this is a big issue. The Chargers are coming off the phenomenal Justin Herbert throwing show in Minnesota. They're averaging 416 yards per game on offense, which is pretty impressive. Not impressive. That defense is giving up 450 yards per game. They are 31st in total defense. They are 32nd in pass defense. And defense was stapled to the front of Brandon Staley's resume. Um, They've given up seven touchdown passes through the air in three weeks so far. Raiders aren't much better. Raiders are, are struggling on offense, 287 yards per game. Raiders on defense, th- giving up 347. Outside of Max Crosby and maybe Marcus Peters, I just don't think the Raiders have very many players on the defensive side of the football. Well, here's a gaudy statistic. Third down defense, mm-hmm. Raiders allowing the enemy to convert 46% oh of God. the third down plays. <laughs> and opposing quarterbacks? Yeah. completion rate against the Silver and Bleak defense. Unbelievable. Just absolutely amazing. Uh, Garoppolo's thrown six interceptions so far this season. They think he's going to start Sunday. The mystery is Josh Jacobs because of this long holdout. He's averaging 2.8 yards per carry. They have no running game at this point. Now, they're playing against a battered Charger defense. Maybe they just run the bleeping ball so they can keep Justin Herbert off the field. Mm -hmm. Maybe Josh Jacobs finds himself. Um, Raiders, Devontae Adams, 13 yards per catch. I mean, he had 13 catches this past season, past weekend. He's got no help around him at all. So Raiders are dysfunctional, and we're, we're dealing with a lot of bad defense from both of these teams. That's, that's one big game. Miami-Buffalo. Holy cow. You have a seatbelt on that chair? <laughs> I don't want you to fall over. This is going to be something. Uh, Dolphins, number one offense in the solar system, 550 yards per game, Miami's offense, because they had 726 when they destroyed Denver last weekend. Uh, But this is Buffalo, and Buffalo is known for a couple different things, Genesee beer, Mm -hmm. heavy snow, and punching them out defense. Buffalo Bills are giving up only 253 yards per game. Wow. So you got Tua and all that offense against Buffalo's tough guy defense. Uh, Tua, 1,024 yards passing in three weeks, eight touchdowns, only one sack. Dude's got a 122 quarterback rating. Wow. That's like, that's in another galaxy, mm-hmm. 122. Tyreek Hill, 16 yards per catch. Jalen Waddell, 20 yards per catch. Now, the Bills aren't shabby. They got Josh Allen, and they're averaging 383 yards per game. And like I say, that defense, they're giving up just 253. Defense has got 12 sacks, nine takeaways. And if you were trying to run a play on third down, they only allow conversion 31%. 
Oh, it's better than the Raiders. Oh, you think? <laughs> so, yeah, there's, a, there's no doubt. So Miami, Buffalo, holy cow. Is it Sunday yet? Can we just fast forward ahead? The other interesting game is the Browns and the Ravens. Uh, you got Lamar Jackson against the number one defense in the National Football League. And Lamar's got 800 yards in all-purpose yards, run and throw in the first three weeks of the season. He's had to do more than I think they want him to do because they're really nicked up at wide receiver again, and the running game has not taken off. So you got Lamar does everything on offense. Cleveland's defense, 163 yards a game. Oh, my God. Jim Schwartz, him, he's got those guys. That's amazing. Rolling. And on third down, third down conversion, 19%. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, that you don't never see those type of statistics. And opponent quarterbacks only forty eight percent completion, and running backs are averaging under three yards per carry against Cleveland. So the, the summary is: the guys wearing the orange helmets, their defense is going to go after that quarterback who's wearing purple. That's going to what do they call that? Immovable object? And what's that phrase? Um, What's well, like inertia, right? Like yeah. the, the definition of inertia, a Movable object will only move unless it's acted on by an outside force. Yeah, is that what you're going like, for? Something like it's that. Something like that. Yeah. But so that's what that's what this Cleveland Baltimore game is going to be. Those are the top games on the NFL schedule come this weekend. Your response? Well, the, the Charger Raider games are always entertaining, right? And, and this is going to be in LA, and there's going to be just a ton of Raider Nation that's going to be there. You can count on that. They say 68% of the tickets have gone to Raider fans. Really? Charger fans are selling their ducats to the Silver and Blue. Well, just like they did when they were in San Diego, exactly. too, because you know they didn't want to have to deal with the riffraff of Raider Nation. But uh, you know that this game is going to be closer than we expect that the chargers are either going to a figure out a way to blow it or B they're going to figure out a way to make mistakes either by the coach or the players to make it closer than it should be. So I don't know what the point spread is here, but I would be taking the Raiders and the points all the way on this. Well, I, I think that to Justin Herbert's going to go crazy against a really bad Raider defense, mm-hmm. really bad. But the flip side is keep Justin Herbert off the field and you run Josh Jacobs till it passes out, and then you have Garoppolo just hit some plays to Devontae Adams, then the Raiders maybe stay in this game as long as Justin Herbert is on the sidelines next to Brandon Staley rather than at the line of scrimmage getting ready to throw touchdown passes. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be the fascinating makeup there. And So what do you think about Buffalo-Miami, huh? Well, that game's in Buffalo, right? Yes. So two is lucky he's not going to Buffalo in December, right, number one. But that's going to be a, a great matchup. I mean, you were talking about how they redid the the offense with the Dolphins and had those timing patterns. So he go one, two, three, boom, you know, and had all of his guys on routes and everyone knew where they were supposed to be. That's interesting to me that they've been able to make that work so well and so efficiently. Um, so it'll be a big test going into Buffalo, but I still root for Josh Allen because he's a Mountain West quarterback guy. And he's, in my opinion, a huge success story considering where he came from in high school and how he got recruited in college. Uh, so I still have a soft spot for the Bills. I'd love to see them do well, but this is going to be a great game. Phenomenal Buffalo pass rush, 12 sacks already. That doesn't include pressures and hits. They're going to get in the face of Tua. Now, Tua's been running the this, this shotgun. Ball's out of there so doggone quick, mm-hmm. and he just wears you out because the tempo that they play at. So the, I think the burning question is, can that Bills pass rush get to that Dolphins quarterback? Or does Dolphins quarterback get the ball out there so quick he just wears out the Bills' defense because they can't get to him? <laughs> Interesting there. 
Okay. We're and then, find out. and then obviously the, the third game is, is Cleveland, Baltimore. Boy, that's going to be a war, but then everything in the AFC North is a war. Yeah, it kind of is, you know, it's just a tough, brutal division, but you know, Lamar got paid. Lamar got his receivers. So this will be, you know, really to test are the Ravens where they need to be. If they can defeat the the Browns in that defense, then you could say, okay, these guys are legit because you were calling the Ravens to win that division in an upset over the Bengals. But we're three weeks into the season. Odell Beckham Jr. is already out with an ankle. Ah, okay. Issues. Okay, we go from NFL football. Interesting couple of games we're going to talk about. Come college football, yeah, John. Yeah, college football time. Big games here for our SoCal teams. Yeah, you got the Trojans in Boulder against Colorado. Who is USC? Well, they're 4-0. USC is Caleb Williams and his Heisman Trophy. Big boy running backs, Marshawn Lloyd and Austin Jones. Big play offense. USC is averaging 569 yards per game. Oh, Just my God. Caleb Williams is going down the field. Now, that's not against great teams. That's against teams that they've beat up. The defense, though, is leaky. 366 yards per game against substandard opponents. What are you going to do when you start playing real people? Mm -hmm. Real people like wearing the Buffalo logo on their helmet this weekend. Uh, Caleb's got 1,200 yards passing in four games. Lloyd and Jones are both averaging eight yards per carry for USC. Their top three wide receivers, Taj Washington, Brendan Reed, Zach Branch, 15 yards per catch. So when they get the ball, they go down the field and they score. The defense is... I think still challenged. I'm not not a big fan of the defensive coordinator, Zach Grinch. Uh, Trojans' pass defense is giving up almost 240 yards per game, and now they're going to face Shadur Sanders. Big question for Colorado physically, how are they after getting battered at Oregon? Bigger question, they're going to face somebody that's got phenomenal offensive speed, can CU's defense control what USC is doing with the football. And then how does how does Colorado's offensive front, defensive front hold up? Because that's really become the weakest link on their team. Can they protect Shooter Sanders? Can they stop the run? Because Lloyd and Jones can pound the football. And how beat up are they physically? And where are they emotionally after what happened? You know, I, I maintain you can only go to the well so many times emotionally to crank players up. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they really had to amp it up to beat Colorado State, which was a hell of a war. And then they had to amp it up to go face Oregon, and boy, they got trashed there. And obviously, they had a really tough game to start this whole thing against TCU, uh, and and they wound up winning that. So how many times can Deion Sanders push that button and have his players respond? And what happens if they get smoked again this week? Hmm. Well, I think there's a chance that they're going to have some trouble here. I mean, you could argue that SC is better than Oregon. So this is going to be a tough game, even at home in Colorado. But, you know, I saw the one of the last pressers that Deion Sanders did, and he gave high praise to Lincoln Riley. And Lincoln Riley just gave high praise to Neon Dion. It's the first coach that's not denounced Dion for any or all reasons, because all those other guys they played. Mm-hmm. I, I will say this. Uh, I think Deion Sanders has been good for college football. I think he has just single-handedly brought unbelievable interest back to the televising of games along the way. So that, that's been really positive. Now, whether or not he's done it the right way, every coach you talk to has a much different opinion along the way as to what uh, he's done. 
But I will say this, that Dion has credited Lincoln Riley for the rejuvenation of the Trojan program. And then at the same time, Lincoln Riley was just really positive about Neon Dion turning around a, a moribund CU program and, you know, revitalizing Colorado football from what they were at 1-11. and 11. And again, Lincoln Riley is the first of any of these coaches before they played their games against Colorado that said positive things because everybody else – from that rule ripping him about the transfer portal to what happened with the Colorado State coach saying, take off your sunglasses and respect the game, will you? Obviously, what happened, Dan Lanning did as he ran up the score at the University of Oregon. Everybody else has kind of shown disdain towards Neon Dion. And here, Lincoln Riley spoke very positively about Coach Prime, and he did the same. That being said, John, <laughs> it might be 56-21 this weekend because I just think there's way too much USC firepower compared uh, to what CU can put on the field. And I worry just about the mental wear and tear and the physical wear and tear because uh, Colorado looked like they were a really beat-up team. Yeah, wow. I'm, well, first of all, apologies. We're back online. John Hopkins is saying that we lost sound. But can you hear us? If you can hear us, type in the live stream that you can hear us or not. Uh, that way, at least I can figure out what's going on. But. And we lost all of our live stream questions and fans forums. So if you want to dial back and jump back into the chat room, just give us a mini question. Everybody that was online, like I said, we had a power failure here. This first time it's ever happened in over a year. It was just bizarre. So I'm not sure if, if oh, okay, he can hear us. Jesse can hear us. Thank you, Jesse. Um, so it's, going back to Colorado and SC, um, first of all, uh, Caleb Williams, unbelievable, you know, what he's able to pull out, maybe a back-to-back Heisman year, potentially. Remember Lincoln Riley, when he was at Oklahoma, he was this offensive guru, and the defense stunk in Oklahoma. Still does. It still does at SC. Now, you know, interestingly, Oklahoma hired a defensive coordinator from Clemson to come in, and now the Oklahoma defense is actually pretty good. But back to SC, yeah, they're going to roll. It's going to be like, like, what did you say, 55 to 36 or something? It's going to be something like that. And then Shiloh Sanders went into the hospital, I heard. So I don't know how he's doing. Travis Hunter's probably out. So, I mean, Sugar Sanders is going to be running for his life and hoping he can hit some receivers. I just don't know that Colorado right now has got enough athletes and nobody's going to ambush anybody anymore because everybody's now seeing what CU is running. But that being said, you know, John, once they get through this game on Saturday, the schedule spins differently for Colorado as they move into the Big 12. So I think they're going to win a chunk of games if they can keep their guys on the field and obviously get the injured guys back up and running. So that's that's an interesting game there. Now, next topic on the table has to do with this team in this town. Yeah, the, the Aztecs, you know, they're going up against the Air Force. This must win for Brady Hoke. Yeah, you they've lost three in a row. You don't want to make it a four-game losing streak. Uh, I, I thought they'd be right there with Boise State, and then they just ran out of gas and got killed on chunk plays last Saturday. Now they got to go to Colorado Springs, and, w- and we know multiple things. Air Force is going to run the ball and run the ball and run the ball more, and you got to play at altitude, and they play ball control. Uh, Air Force leads the country in rushing. Air Force leads the nation uh, in time of possession. Air Force, and it's weird, they're second in the nation in defense, giving up just 223 yards per game. Uh, They've they've got their hands full here. Air Force ran for 400 against San Jose. They're averaging 340 yards per game on the ground 
Uh, they, it's weird. They don't throw it very much, but they make it play so much up front that they're averaging 27 yards per catch when they go down the field and throw. So your, your guys in the secondary have to hold up and win one-on-one matchups because they're going to be naked out there covering those guys because you got to commit so many people up front. I think the key is Jalen Maiden and the Aztecs have got to be able to pound it. Now, they think they've uncovered a couple of wide receivers plus the tight end. I think they have enough weapons to get on Air Force early. If they can make it 14 nothing early, that's a big hill for Air Force to climb. They have to put eight guys in the box. They have to blitz the gaps. They're going to have. That's how you slow down that offense. That Air Force runs at you, and they're just going to be physical as hell at the line of scrimmage because Air Force is physical as hell running it. And then you got the altitude. And I, Brady Hope did not want to talk about it. We don't consider that. Well, it's reality. You're playing at freaking <laughs> five thousand seven hundred feet in Colorado Springs. It's such a great environment. It is such a cool place. I don't know if you've ever been to an Army Navy game. Yeah. Uh, Colorado Springs is kind of just like that. It is such a neat environment to see the parade of the cadets and those cadets fill that stadium to see that whole pregame ceremony. And then at the end of the game, it's really kind of cool. Rocky Long started this tradition, regardless of whether the Aztecs won or lost. He took his players to the end zone with the Air Force players as the Air Force players saluted all the cadets in the stands, and they sang the Air Force album mod. It's really kind of cool. Yeah. And Rocky Long started this, this after the game. We are linked arms to arms uh, with the Air Force players. So it's kind of an emotional thing to go see an experience for the first time. But damn, Air Force is they're 4-0, and they're really good. And you know, they, they did beat the hell out of San Diego State down here mm-hmm. at the end of last season. So I'll be a Real, real tough game for San Diego State, but I think I still have confidence the Aztecs have enough firepower to make this thing work. Well, does Brady Hoke still run Rocky Long's defense, right? Yeah. Which, how many defensive backs do they play at one time? Like, well, three, five, five, and what they yeah. do is they make linebackers safeties, and then they have linebackers who become blitz defensive ends, and they shoot people. But that's that's against somebody's running normal offense. Yeah, and you put your thinking. quarterback in jeopardy. Here, I just think they have to jam the line of scrimmage, and they have to win at the point of attack, because if, if that they can't stop that fullback, they're going to have problems. And if they can't stop the quarterback in the pitch, they're going to have problems. they got to find a way. they got to get off the field defensively. And like I said last week, Air Force ran for 400 against San Jose. Isn't it interesting, though, how Air Force in both football and basketball, every once in a while they're really good. We're Army and Navy, not so much. you know. So I kind of wonder what the Air Force Academy is doing. Uh, if, if they're a little bit different than the other academies? Great question. There's a lot of continuity. Troy Calhoun's been there 17 years. He's mm-hmm. an Air Force grad. He was an assistant coach in the NFL with the Houston Texans and came back to take the head coaching job. His two coordinators have been there with him. One, I think, has been there 15 years. The other's been 17 years. So there's some continuity. And they, they know the kind of player they need. They know the kind of person they're getting because the, the kid that goes to Air Force prep and then goes on to the academy, is I mean, he's a special academic person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a unique mix. They've had a lot more success. You know, they had Fisher DeBerry was there for a thousand years as head coach. They've had a lot more success doing what they do. Whereas Army and Navy have gone through a, a real churn of head coaches uh, after every three or four years. And Army and Navy have had an occasional couple of good seasons. But what Air Force has done is, is really, really impressive. So 
Tough game for the Aztecs against Air Force. Those are the two big games, I think, in college football this weekend. Oh, what are the, just just for grins, the Marines and the Coast Guard. I mean, they don't have academies, do they? I mean, the Marines go through the Naval Academy, or do they? No, no, they have their own. They they used to they used to play. I don't know if you'd call it Division One football, or maybe it was university football, or maybe it was the college football division. Quantico used to have college football, no, but, but that goes back a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they they used to have that. Okay, let's move on. We got uh, another college football story to talk about. This story is just starting to break loose. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what this is about because this is about the haves and the have-nots, right? Okay, this is Dateline Chicago. With the transfer of all these teams to different conferences, with the impending death of the Pac-12, the 12-team playoff that starts next year in 2024 is going to be different. The original package that had been proposed when they expanded to 12 They take the champion of each of the power fives, Mm -hmm. and then they take the best-ranked champion from a group of five conference. In other words, might that be Boise State in the Mountain West? Might that be Toledo in the Mid-American? Who would it represent in the AAF, et cetera? Well, that's what it was supposed to be, five plus one guaranteed, and then six at large. Well, now with the death of the Pac-12, a year from now, they've kind of indicated the Pac-2, Oregon State, Washington State, will only get in if they have an unbelievable record. We're not guaranteeing anybody who plays under the, the banner of the Pac-2 mm-hmm. or whatever it becomes that's a guaranteed slot. Now they're trying to configure. Do they just stay with the top four get guaranteed slots, the power, power five teams? There's four major conferences. And what do we do? If we only have four, what do we do with the rest of the slots? Do we take the best teams in two of the group of five conferences? Would you take the best Mid-American team, the best Mountain West team, and guarantee them a slot in the playoffs? Or just make it all at large? So they met for two days in Chicago, and they talked and talked and talked and never came up with a legitimate proposal to vote on. So what they've done is they've just decided to table this for the time being to try to determine what becomes of, of the Pac-2? Can that thing expand? Will it have any credibility of named teams? So they, they still have a window here to decide this, but everybody was pushing, what's your decision? And they said, no, we're, we're, we're just not going to make a decision right now. It's complex. You know, do you just have four and then you have four plus one group of five champ? Or do you make it four plus two group of five champs? And then how do you ferret out all the at-large bids? I wasn't good in calculus. I'm sure you are. So go ahead. You figure it out. <laughs> this is like, you know, separate but equal kind of yeah. argument, which is bananas. But it's funny how they want to, you know, dropkick Murphy, you know, the pack two, you know, get rid of those teams. But they're both having great years. They're both, what, top 25 programs sure. at Washington State and Oregon State. To me, I, I would love to see this model destroyed, you know, about the upper tier and the lower tier. And just take the best teams, period. You know, and yeah, you you don't know, like, is a group of five team really as good as their record says they are because they haven't played anybody, but they they don't have to figure that out. But but reserving six of the eight spots for power five to me is just wrong. You should just take the eight best teams and put them in. Well, they're going to argue about this and we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, over the next six months. (laughs) And then they're going to have to make a determination. All right. Before I go to Fan Swarm, I got one more topic on the table. This one's a little bit different. 
Okay, yeah, we're talking golf. I mean, this is a big-time tournament now. Yeah, the spotlight is in Italy. Ryder Cup competition begins on Friday. Team USA versus Team Europe. Uh, Ryder Cup has got great, great history. Americans have not won on European soil in the Ryder Cup in 30 years. That's a long time. These two teams are really loaded. The controversy of the LIV has been shoved off to the side. Nobody's talking about the guys who left. They're only talking about what's going to happen. This golf course, Marco Simone course in Italy, it's really different. It's hilly. It's like it's built into chunks of a mountain, John. And the, the, the fairways go up and they go down. And you got the greens that are really, really different. So uh, I don't know what to expect from a golf standpoint. I'll tell you what we do have, though. You got Team USA with Scotty Scheffler, Xander Shoffley, Brooks Kepka. Those are the marquee guys representing Team USA. You got Team Europe with John Rahm and Rory McElroy and a guy from Sweden that has had a banner year in Victor Hovland. So this will be fascinating. They're playing, if the first round is Friday morning, they play foursomes. Then they come back Friday afternoon and they, quote, play best ball. So if you're, if you're teamed up, if Rory and Rom are representing the Euros and they're playing Xander and Sheffley in best ball, the two guys hit their balls, and then the guy with the best shot mm-hmm. takes the second shot, right and, on. and you play that lead ball in to try to win the cup win the hole a uh, very complex scoring system but uh, it's 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 really big it's really big in Europe too my goodness those fans are boisterous and belligerent and they're European fans so this is cool because we've got all these good names for the most part are playing here and the fact that Brooks Kepka is he's the LIV guy that made the cut because it's all based on points how you get selected and then the captain has other choices that he can make at the end. Well, we got at least six big-time names here, plus assorted other guys like Tommy Fleetwood, et cetera, guys that have had really good individual seasons that are part of the team. So fascinating to tee this sucker off in front of it's not, It's not metal play. It's not like we normally see on CBS with Jim Nance mm-hmm. on Sunday afternoons. It's just it's real different feel to it, and it's being played in Europe. Yeah, it seems to be in Italy, you said. And I remember you were talking earlier about how when the PGA and the LIV were merging, that they were going to be more international. They were going to have tournaments really on all the continents, just about, well, except maybe Antarctica. But uh, I wonder, is this part of it? You know, I mean, having this tournament, has it always been in Europe, or does it go back and forth? No, it goes back and forth between the U.S. It's just America has not won on the European soil since I think it was 1993. But but this, the Ryder Cup, is owned and operated differently than the PGA Tour. And when this merger ever takes place, the LIV PGA merger will have no sanctions to run what the Ryder Cup is. Ryder Cup is a whole different entity, kind of like the Masters and right. and like the British Open. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, this will be kind of fun to watch, yep. uh, especially to see if, that it's not metal play, that it's like some of these best ball tournaments that we play here locally. It'll be kind of fun, maybe. I agree. Hey, listen, our podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Center Stores. Nine locations to serve you. You're going to be out and about, got projects for the fall. Take a run through Dixie Line and see all the things they offer. It is time for Fans Forum. Again, we had a power failure in midstream. We are back. We got a lot of people who reposted their questions. 
John, where do you want to start? We'll buzz through as many as we can before the power goes off again. Yeah, so I got the these in, in, in the part two of our podcast, but I saved all the ones in part one. So hopefully I can get to those two. And uh, this first one is from Iori666. says, uh, AJ is really the problem here. Thus, uh, this ownership has made him untouchable in terms of responsibility when it comes to the result of this team. Melvin is a good manager. Job responsibility, AJ Preller. Secure the players. Job responsibility, Bob Melvin. You run the clubhouse, you run the dugout, you run the games. Yes, I understand about analytics. Um, AJ, I think, has done a good job in some areas. I think he's done a negligent job in a bunch of areas. There's a lot of criticism from all these articles that were posted that we talked about last week. A lot of articles about his communication skills. Peter Seidler owns this thing. He has funded this thing. He needs to get these two guys to divide the power. And in essence, if I were king, AJ, go get players. AJ, stay out of the clubhouse and stay out of the dugout. You have a right to give your manager all the metrics, the analytics, but it's his game. It's his lineup card, etc. Don't know if that's going to happen, but that's what I think should happen. So back in, in your radio days, did you ever have um, executives kind of breathing down your neck, telling you what to do and how to work your job? All the time. Yeah. All the time. You know, no one likes that. No, it's, my whole thing was, I apologize in advance, scoreboard, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what I've accomplished in ratings and revenue for my stations. Don't mm-hmm. have somebody from freaking San Antonio or Tampa coming in there and telling me what I should and should not talk about. He doesn't know the market. I know my market. That's why I stopped reading memos and going to staff meetings. But okay. How'd that work out? Okay, next question. Okay, moving on down the list here. And this is uh, from 4RXLA. Charger defense state will go away. What? Chargers defense stats. Stats. Okay, my bad. Will go way up after the Raiders, Devontae Adams only offense. Hanks only 10 points on I concur with you. Uh, now, the only, only idea is if they can run Josh Jacobs, and by the way, last I checked, Bolts haven't played good run defense in about three years. If they can make it a ball control game, believe the clock, and then score some points and keep Justin Herbert off the field, maybe that changes the chemistry of the game. But Justin Herbert is so good, and the Raider defense is so weak. Raiders have a really fierce pass rush, but Max Crosby can't play 48 minutes. Uh, I think the Chargers should win this, and they better win this, because somebody's going to be 1-3 and three by Sunday night, Somebody's going to be in big trouble. <laughs> imagine, imagine if the Chargers lost this. I mean, do you think Spanos would fire Staley mid mid season? Because this is a disgrace. What's happened so far? Well, as I say, they they have the thirty first ranked defense in the league and the thirty second worst pass defense in the league. Yeah, from a head coach who supposedly has defensive credentials. But you're a Charger fan. See what happens. You're a Raider fan. Be ready to participate also. Go ahead, John. Next question. Okay, this next one's from John, and he says, the Padres' future depends upon the health of Peter Seidler. If he recovers, he wants to win and run a championship team. If he has to step down, then the Padres revert to a small market organization. Well, it'll be interesting to see because Seidler Equity, which is his business venture, co-funds this franchise, has input into the operation of the franchise, and I was told we'll have one of their lawyers at the Monday end-of-season evaluation meeting. I think Seidler likes these two guys. I think he wants them to work together, but he may have to lay down the law as to what A.J.'s responsibility is and what Bob Melvin is supposed to do. I don't know how you heal 
how you heal the wounds of kind of what's developed over the last calendar year. I, I think that I had somebody tell me as a player agent said the, the biggest problem in that clubhouse right now is distrust, the distrust of who we are in this clubhouse and what's going on upstairs. Mm-hmm. And if it shouldn't be that way, it should be, what's the phrase, pulling the rope all in the same direction. Yeah, yeah. I don't get that sense at all with Padre Baseball. So Peter Peter Seidler has has a real challenge ahead to solve this issue because I, I, I just think there's been a complete collapse of the communication line between what AJ's job is, what Bob's job is, and why is AJ's fingerprints all over everything. Well, I remember when the new ownership group came in and Ron Fowler was in the number one seat, they talked about having this continuity, you know, this consistency. And they talked about the Steelers as a model. And they said, okay, we're going to go hire a president. And they hired D, Mike D. And then, then we're going to get the, the, the GM, and then we're going to get the manager. And their vision was it was going to continue long term. But it, it seems they just can't find that consistency. So I, like, I, I'm just curious. I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting on a Monday and just to hear what's going on because – we only get part of the story and we get it filtered through the mouths of the players and other management people and the media, but you're never really sure what the truth is. Well, you never will be. It doesn't matter what, whether you're talking major league baseball and the Padres and you're talking about the crisis within the Chargers organization or what's going on in Lakerland, et cetera. You never get the full story that only happens in the inner circle of the people that have to make the decisions. But at the end of the day, this team underachieved. Period exclamation point. And then at the end of the season, it was kind of shredded by significant injuries to key core players. But first 130 games of the season, this thing underachieved. And there's no way to sugarcoat that. No. no we're not going to sales picture that everything is beautiful just because you beat all these <laughs> last place teams the last two weeks of the season. So they've got to solve the chemistry issue front office to clubhouse to dugout. Oh, but three games left, and we're still alive, right? <laughs> Everly optimist out in left field. Next question, John. Okay, let's go to Kenny. And he says, uh, hey, when will the Bolts give Isaiah Spiller some quality playing time and see what the kid can do? Well, he's gotten some snaps, but he hasn't hasn't broken a run yet. Uh, he's probably had maybe 10 to 12 carries in the first three games of the season. Of course, with Eckler having been out, Josh Kelly's become the heavy guy. But Spiller has gotten snaps. Uh, I'll give Spiller credit when he has been in there as the replacement of Josh Kelly, he has stuck his nose in there and boots blocking and has done a good job. And Josh Kelly's done a really good job stepping into the hole and stopping blitzes against Justin Herbert. I don't know, you know, this is weird because of the the way the calendar falls. I don't know if I were the Chargers that I would play at club this weekend. And the Raiders are so bad. I think the Chargers can beat him with Justin Herbert's Mm arm. And they have a bye week next week. Ah, so okay. if what I would, if I were king, I would sit Eckler one more week, and then you have the whole bye week. So he's he's going to do two more weeks of real intense therapy and get him back. Because mm-hmm. if you bring him back against the Raiders and he gets hurt again, or he doesn't he doesn't hold up, now you got a longer problem with the rest of the schedule. So that's that's what I would do because I think you can trust Josh Kelly to lug it, and obviously Keller and Spiller have both shown that they can blitz block. And have kind of held up in that area. And Justin Herbert is Justin Herbert. And you're playing the Raiders, who don't have, I don't think, have any defense at all. Well, do you think um, Garoppolo is going to play the whole game? I mean, who was the other guy? Was it Hoyer? The- yeah, Brian Hoyer, who had been in New England. He's been there 38, he's 38 years old. It's amazing. Former starter Houston, former starter Cleveland, journeyman yeah. at best. But 
They, I don't think that they beat the Chargers with Hoyer. Um, Garoppolo, he, was ta- he took all snaps today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually 70 snaps in, in a Thursday workout. He took 35. I think Hoyer took 35. So they'll have both of them prepared, but I think they're a much better chance with Garoppolo as a starting quarterback. But, you know, they, they've got to find a way, A, to move the ball and score, and B, to keep Justin Herbert off the field. And I think the road they have to travel it was Josh Jacobs, and Jacobs had 1,800 all-purpose yards last year, and he's only been a shell of himself because of this long contract holdout that he had. Yeah, now show me the money, you know. <laughs> on we go. On we go. This is from Padres News. He says, this is the best Padres YouTube channel. I agree with that comment. <laughs> now, it's everybody does it differently, and that's fine. I have my sources, and I, I, I spend half my day networking with people. Uh, who cover a lot of different teams. And I swap information. I ask for assessments. I, I, I deal not only with media guys. I, I have relationships with some player agents. It's, I use the sounding boards. I don't believe everything that everybody tells me, and I, uh, none of the media guys do. And, I mean, it's quite a story, though, that's been uncovered here. And that the fact that there were 32 people who gave those two websites anonymous comments and the fact that the Padres aren't standing up and screaming at the media like this is this is fabricated, this is fake news, well, it's me believe there's a significant chemistry problem in that clubhouse. Yeah, I mean the, the whole anonymous quote usually you just dismiss it. Out no, of you can't do that when you're in the media. No, if you trust the person that's giving you the quote. The fact that this came from players or ex-players or staffers or ex-staffers who were here and left and went to work for other clubs, there's a lot of those people out there. Well, but I mean, as a reader, if I hear anonymous quote, I dismiss it because it's not credible. Now, granted, the the media person may have been legitimately talking to that person and they, you know, it's kind of off the record or off the record as long as you remove my name. But to your other point, though, they have have massive problems they've got to solve. And it's just so heartbreaking as a Padre fan where we finally thought this was the year and we were going to have this great run and it's just been another disaster. And meanwhile, the Freaking Dodgers are just rolling, and it's just like we can't get a break in San Diego. Dumbass co-host of this podcast said they were going to go 162. How'd that work out? Yeah, I, I, I was with you. I was thinking, oh, maybe more than that. Next question. Okay, so uh, there's another comment from um, Iori. says, will you guys be taking calls at some point? Well, anything's possible. Uh, I, I'm not real good on technology, and up until about an hour ago, John was great at technology, <laughs> and the power went out here. In our Dixie Line studios. But, yeah, maybe that's something we'll consider down the road. We'll, we're working on a lot of different things, but there's only so many hours on the day to get this stuff done. Can we get some uh, social media comments in here? Go ahead. Let's get a few in. And uh, let's go to – yeah, this is a common comment. This is talking about the Aztecs and why was no one there. And uh, this is from uh, Stuart, and he says, tickets were way too expensive. Minimum $63 plus $30 parking plus gas, wear, tear, 30 bucks plus food. It would cost $150 for just one person to go to an Aztec game. Plus Ticketmaster fouls up my Android and PC, and there's really no way to buy physical tickets any longer. So I stay at home now. I had two season tickets last year, but the Arizona Heat fiasco game turned my daughter from going to any game ever. I simply can't afford these prices for a lousy, unentertaining team. San Diego State has misplayed this entire launch of the stadium just terribly. You know, and, they, and some of their people have whined about all these fans. They just cry about everything. Well, at the end of the day, product has been questionable on the field. Obviously, the 1 o'clock games have been a bit of a blow. Even the 4.30 games have been a bit of a blow. 
but the pricing is absurd. And when when I, you know, I was told that the Boise State tickets went from one hundred to two hundred dollars, and then there was a, a surcharge of twenty percent on top of the tickets, and then you add in parking, and if you want to have dogs and brew or whatever, it's just an expensive night out unless there's an emotional link. And I just I ask the question again and again and again: Where are the alumni? How come the alumni? That's your school. You, you aren't a football fan or just don't care. Where's the alumni? Where's the damn student body? Because they get the game for free and they don't even go to pick up the tickets to get in the game to go for free. So it's it's just a deep-seated problem. And the price tags that San Diego State, as good a job as I think J.D. Wicker has done, the fact that his people put these price tags on these tickets, it's just absurd. Yeah, that I mean, it's just way too expensive. But remember, you know, they weren't going to the Aztec basketball games, you know, and, and then Fisher came in and built a winning program, and now they're selling out or close to selling out every game. So I still believe if they win, the people will come, and then they'll be on the bandwagon, you know, just like the Padre fans are. But I'll tell you what, that stadium I went, you know, a few weeks ago, the Idaho State game, it was great. I mean, what a beautiful yeah. facility and I mean, I, I just really hope they have success. Could be rocking, should be rocking, is not rocking. Mm-hmm. And that's on San Diego State's leadership, their mm-hmm. marketing people, etc. A couple more here. Okay, let's go here. A little Chargers-Vikings comments from Richie. And he says, O'Connell and Cousins bailed him out by not spiking it. Cousins could have had three shots at the end zone instead of one. Bad coaching all around. O'Connell saved Staley's behind. Well, there's no doubt there were mistakes made. And in his Monday press conference, Kevin O'Connell said, yeah, there were communication problems. But common sense says spike the bloody football. Uh, Give yourself a chance to call two plays over 26 seconds. You get two shots to go to the end zone. And they did not do it. And like I said on our Monday bonus podcast, these teams practice the end of the game scenarios. And I sat there with a minute 20 seconds to go. And I watched the, the Viking offensive linemen just wandering around. (laughs) After the play, the ball had been set down. You're supposed to be in your three-point stance. What are you doing? Where's the football intelligence here? And then, obviously, O'Connell should have just given Kirk Cousins the spike sign, or Kirk Cousins should have gone the line of scrimmage and spiked the football. But just the whole thing was terribly mishandled. And a a situation you could have won. You know, so they go to 0-3, and I think they play Carolina this week. What if they lose that game? What if they're 0-4? Mm. So, yeah, this this could turn out to be a miserable season. And these games are so hard to win. And when you have a chance to win it at the six-yard line and you don't get the plays off, bad. That's a bad scenario. It is bad. And But, you know, a lot of these guys, like Staley, like O'Connell, you know, they came up as coordinators, defensive, offensive coordinator. When you're the head coach, man. A lot of pressure on you. And right there at crunch time at the end of the game to make those decisions and manage the clock is not easy. But we see someone like with experience like Mike Tomlin, and that guy is smooth. He knows exactly how he's going to play it. So this is part of the learning curve for these young guys. But as fans and as a franchise, we can't afford to have them learning on the job doing this thing. You need like some support. He needs to have a wingman that just talks about clock management you know, for O'Connell, and then another wingman being Staley's ear on these BS fourth down calls. But he's got a 13-year veteran quarterback in Kirk Cousins who's seen everything. Mm. Just take control of the play, and oh, you can't communicate with the sideline because of the noise? No problem. Spike the ball. Stops the clock. There you go. You know, or you go to line of scrimmage and you do this, mm. and you get the fans to shut up. It just, it was 
such a fiasco at the end. Okay, how about a couple more? Well, here? just real quick on this one. I just checked Instagram. The video is now at 105,000 views. And we just posted it last night. Last night at 10 o'clock on Instagram. Okay, let's go here. Let's talk a little bit about Manny and the uh, Padres leadership. This is from Steve-O. And he says, remember the thrown bat to third base, the Donaldson tag, the Pedroia Xander slides, the drop bat at the coach's feet or the catcher's feet, the contact with first baseman's feet while running to first. Hey, Manny, it's not everyone else. It's you. And, hey, you got 10 more years of this San Diego. Best of luck. I'm, I'm tired of blaming Bob. Players need to be held accountable. But how do you hold these players accountable? Talk bad about them? What's on the back of his baseball card? Manny. Uh, they got, that guy keeps obviously keeps a history of Manny's faux pas. <laughs> Along the way, he's had a really good season. I mean, he grinds and he plays hard. I don't like the persona. Uh, I think there's a clubhouse issue as it relates to his leadership. I was told there's an issue between him and Bogarts. It goes back to Baltimore, Boston days. Uh, so, yeah, that we need leadership in the clubhouse. And I don't know whether that's going to come from Melvin. But if Melvin has been interfered with by Preller, that's a problem. Maybe they solve that problem Monday and it becomes a different clubhouse. It becomes Melvin's clubhouse with the veteran players mm-hmm. following his lead, but you know, this has to change. That being said, there's just too much talent to have this be a throwaway season. And I just, I would give everybody one more year. And at that meeting on Monday, if I were King, I am telling AJ, you're taking care of your job and your job is right this way. Mm-hmm. And if you're Melvin, you're taking care of your job and your job starts in the clubhouse, goes to the dugout and all the game activity. And these players, it's your responsibility to do what that manager tells you. And if Melvin needs to be tough on these guys publicly, then he needs to be tough on these guys. And if they can't take it, tough crap. You're making 20 to $30 million a year. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. Uh, and then it's up to AJ to go figure out how they're going to handle the budget and who leaves, who stays, how he replaces them if there's a mass exodus. So it's going to be a really interesting offseason. Hey, listen, we hope you have enjoyed our podcast, Power Shortage Outage Notwithstanding. Uh, Invite you to do a couple of things. One, subscribe to everything we're doing on our podcast. Two, go to my website, leehacksawhamilton.com, because I write a ton of stuff every day. And three, share with all your friends. Tell them who we are, what we're doing, regardless of what their favorite sport or team is. John, it's been fun, even with a power outage. I've never seen John move like this. He looked like an option quarterback. The color in his face, he went all white. He was diving under the tables trying to figure out where are we, why did we go off in the middle? It was it was really different. But he got us back on the air. That's pretty doggone good. And our podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Center Stores, nine locations in San Diego. Build it, fix it, guarantee this fall you will enjoy it. Our thanks again to Dixie Line. John, enjoy the great sports weekend. We'll see you come bonus Monday, and I'm going to be on the road, so we're going to be doing a little bit different podcast on Monday. Yeah, so, again, this weekend, if the Padres can sweep the White Sox, then they'll finish over 500, and that's a small victory. Hey, have yourself a great sports weekend. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to leehacksawhamilton.com.